All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance on our study. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word. Your word explains to us the realities of life. Life is more than just what we see, taste, touch, and feel. Life is more than what our limited, finite reason can think through. Life extends to its ultimate creator. It extends into the heavens, for life is what you have informed us about. Life is cut short by sin. We see the entry of sin in the Garden of Eden, the consequences of sin was first and foremost the sin penalty, spiritual death, separation from you, and secondly, the consequence of physical death. But the promise of Scripture is life and life eternal through faith in Jesus Christ, and this life is ours. It's part of a plan, a plan that was conceived by you, but even that is a poor word for it indicates a beginning. There's no beginning in your thinking. It was always there. This plan goes into eternity past forever and ever. It has been part of your thinking, your omniscience, and trying to probe the depths of that knowledge is beyond us. We can understand some things but cannot understand it fully or totally. And as we study these doctrines of Scripture, the teaching of Scripture with regard to election and predestination and omniscience and foreknowledge. We know that there we will be left with many questions, but we can come to understand your word more accurately, and it helps inform us in ways that strengthen our faith, our trust in you, and our daily walk with you. Pray that you will help us to understand more about these things as we open your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. We're looking at this section from 3 through 5, which we began to look at last week and which brings to our attention actually four words, three of which are used in this passage uh, fourth comes to play and is associated with them in other passages. And these words are foreknowledge, election, choice, and predestination. Something simple for a Sunday morning to think through these complex doctrines. This is, this is good, solid, spiritual meat. And for some who may not have much background in the Word or thinking through these things, this may get pretty heavy. And it's sort of like um, going from baby food to good, solid uh, steak. Sometimes when you hit something that's a little, little heavy for you, you just have to set it aside until you come back. Let me tell you, as a pastor... As a seminary student, you know, working through these things and having taught through this over the last 30-plus uh, years, uh, every time I go through it, I review and I study more and I dig down more and I add a little here and a little there to my own knowledge and my own understanding. And that's the same way it's going to be for you. Will you ever answer all of the questions that come to your mind? No, not at all. Because in this, we are probing the thinking of God. And man can never understand the thinking of God, for his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And his knowledge is a different kind of knowledge than our knowledge. 
We will get to this eventually, but the background for understanding what we're looking at today in terms of the foreknowledge of God has to do very much with how this term is defined and understood and how it is defined and understood in relation to the omniscience of God. The term omniscience means that God is all-knowing. Part of the issue that comes up, does God just know that which he has decreed, or does God know every permutation, every possibility, every contingency, and what will happen ad infinitum to each and in each scenario that we can think of or that could possibly happen? Uh, How omniscient is God? And this has some practical implications for us because when it comes to our lives and when it comes to the things that we face and the things that we deal with, one of the great comforts is that none of this is a surprise to God. God has always, always, billions and billions of years ago known everything that would transpire in your life and my life, every decision we would make, good or bad, uh, and all of the consequences of all of those decisions. When we study the omniscience of God, what we come to understand is God knows everything that can be known about what will happen and what might have happened. That begins to boggle our finite minds. That God not only knows everything that will happen and could have happened and might have happened, but that God in his knowledge has always known everything. Think about this. God never increases or decreases in knowledge. There's never a change to his, his knowledge. And his knowledge is beyond boundary, beyond comprehension. It, uh, his, the infinity of God applies to his knowledge, his power, and his presence. And whenever it comes to concepts that uh, involve infinity, our finite minds are going to hit certain walls, and we're just not going to get very far beyond that. But God has revealed these things to us, and these words and these terms that we're going to be studying over the next two or three lessons are important words because God has used them to describe his plan and purpose uh, for our life. There's a lot of debate and confusion about this, and this is what I began to look at last week. Now, just as a reminder, in this opening section from verse 3 down through verse 14, we see a praise to God, a eulogy in the uh, correct sense of the term, which is a word of praise, the praising God, and the, it's a triune praise. God the Father is praised, God the Son is praised, and then God the Holy Spirit is praised. And what we need to understand is this, as the opening, lays out a foundation. Because when we get down into the praise to Christ, and he talks, Paul talks about the fact that in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin, then we have to understand how that fits within this plan of God for salvation. And it rests, that understanding rests on an understanding of these concepts that we're touching on as we look at, as we look at, um, uh, not foreknowledge and choice and, uh, election and predestination. So in this first section, there's a praise for the blessings provided by the Father. And when we look at verse four, we read, uh, that this is translated just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, there is an important aspect here that is part of the, under, the interpretation of the passage, and that is, does this mean that he chose us to be in him, which is how... Uh, the strong Calvinist would interpret that, that this is talking about the individual selection to salvation 
And, of course, that brings in a related doctrine, the flip side of the coin, that those who are not chosen are either actively chosen for eternal damnation or they are uh, passively uh, sent to eternal damnation. But the flip side, the dark side of Calvinism, is that if God is choosing some for salvation, he is also choosing others for eternal condemnation. So is it this option, he chose us to be in him, or should we understand it that before the foundation he chose us who are in him that we should be blameless? Now, this relates to a concept that is sometimes described as a corporate election, and we'll deal with some of that later on, but the idea here is that God is not looking at, and that in terms of what Paul is saying here, God is not looking at who individuals who he is selecting to be saved or not saved, but he is looking at this group that is already being viewed as being saved, that is being in him, and he is selecting them for a particular purpose and destiny, okay? It's sort of like this. You may see a mass of people, and you may be going along and saying, okay, I'm going to select some from this crowd, and so you pick some people to go with you, and that's individual selection. Or you may look down the street and you say, the people that are in that house are going to go with me. Now, you haven't said anything about how they got into the house. You're just talking about that group that is in the house. And so when we see a phrase like this, that he chose us, one of the questions is, well, on what basis? Now, we'll get into this a little more when we talk about that term, but that's a really important question because on the Calvinist side, they say this is just hidden in the secret counsel of God. And in fact, some of them will even use terminology that involves words like arbitrary. Is this just God choosing people willy-nilly or arbitrary, or does he do this on the basis of some criterion? The absence of a mention of a criterion does not mean a criterion does not exist. Okay? Now, does that criterion involve his knowledge? Or does it ignore his omniscience? Now, in Calvinism, it ignores his omniscience. He can't take into account that which he knows beforehand because according to their view, that means that there is something in man that makes them savable. And this boils down to a misunderstanding of what faith means. So is your mind already getting warped out? This involves so many different things, and that's why it is such a controversial topic and why there have been questions about predestination and election and free will and God's sovereignty that continue to be the source of debate. Books are published. New books come out every year, books like Four Views on uh, Divine Sovereignty and Free Will come out. Others are debates between two, uh, two different theologians, and this goes on and on. It has been a source of great division. It has divided people uh, ever since it, things began to be solidified in the 5th century in what became known as the, the Augustinian uh, Pelagian debate, Augustine being considered the orthodox, presenting the orthodox view, and Pelagius teaching a heretical view. Now, I have no question that Pelagius was heretical, but I'm not sure Augustine was all that orthodox either. And yet he has been... T- I wish I had his PR people. I have known this, any of you who've been to Bible college or seminary, you will hear professors go on and on about how wonderful and brilliant and influential Augustine was. And yes, he was brilliant, and he was influential, and he shaped the thinking of the Middle Ages in profound ways. But that doesn't mean he was right. 
And I have gone back many times over the years, and I have read through uh, Augustine. I had to read him for different courses, both in my study of philosophy as well as my uh, biblical studies. And when you look at his exegesis and you compare his exegetical methodology to what we think of as solid exegetical methodology today, and I'm not talking about just within a narrow scope, but generally within the last, that which has developed within the last 150 to 200 years within evangelicalism, his exegesis is pathetic. He is a classic example of those who come along and they have a very tight, organized, internally consistent system of theology, and then they read that into Scripture. And that happens, you know, to all kinds of people do that. And what we try to do here is to start with Scripture and to build our understanding of theology and doctrine and these issues from the ground up, from looking at what individual scriptures teach. One of the things we did last week pointed out that two verses that are very important in this that are usually ignored or there's just all kinds of intellectual gymnastics made to avoid uh, their their apparent meaning. Uh, and that's 1 Peter 1.2 and Romans 8.29. In 1 Peter 1.2, elect is on the basis, and we have to define what elect means, and I'll come back to that, but just for the sake of argument, we'll assume that this has their meaning. It's elect according to the foreknowledge of God, on the basis of, on the ground of, for the reason of. That is the idea of the of the Greek participle there, kata, and it indicates that that foreknowledge precedes election. Romans 8.29 gives us an order. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then we read on into verse 30 several more things, including justification and glorification all Related, but the first thing that happens in this chain of events is foreknowledge. What does that mean? And we have to understand that. But another thing before we get into our specifics of what we're looking at today is I had pointed out last time that it's, it's important to understand the history of these ideas. And I've already stated that the Middle Ages is profoundly shaped by Augustine or Augustine. He was the bishop of Hippo, which is in North Africa, Carthage uh, area. And he was uh, extremely influential through his writings, through his teaching, and this came to be accepted as orthodoxy. And then it, and it was challenged by Pelagius. And then you had several councils, to make matters worse, who said, well, we're not going to go as far as the double predestination of Augustine, so we're going to drop double predestination and just have single predestination. And they were called semi-Augustinians. And then you had others on the other side that wouldn't go as far as Pelagius, and so they became known as semi-Pelagians. And one of the things you have in the course of this debate is people who, theologians, who will adamantly assert that if you're not a Calvinist, then you are Armenian, that there's only two options. And the problem with that is that there are numerous theologians who take, who do not follow the, the system of either the five points of Calvinism or the five points of Arminianism, and they reject the definitions that uh, both sides present for their points. There really is a different way and a more biblical way to look at things. But just to remind you of what I said last time, that the Reformation, which is the, the challenge to the authority of Rome, the challenge to the interpretation of Scripture by the Roman Catholic Church and by the popes, is initiated by an Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, and the date is October 31st, 1517, and he nails onto the bulletin board of the neighborhood, which is the front door of the church, a challenge to debate 95 points. He has moved from being a believer in salvation in the church, which was an Augustinian doctrine, to believing that you needed to trust in Christ 
alone for justification. He didn't have it right by 1517. He was, I believe he was saved by then, but it was his number two guy who came along and really helped him format his, uh, his theology, and that was a guy named Philip Melanchthon. And under Melanchthon, I think he came to a clear understanding of justification by faith alone as we would articulate it as free grace. And he influenced John Calvin. I've got a couple of quotes to tell you the influence of Augustine on Calvin. In his treatise on eternal, the eternal predestination of God, Calvin wrote, In a word, Augustine is so holy with me that if I wish to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. So he is totally devoted, and it's, here he admits his thinking is totally shaped by Augustine. Charles Haddon Spurgeon considered one of the greatest preachers of the English language in a work entitled Exposition of the Doctrines of Grace, writes, that doctrine which is called Calvinism did not spring from Calvin. Perhaps Calvin himself derived, derived it mainly from the writings of Augustine. Benjamin Breckinridge Warfield, who was the head of the Systematic Theology Department at Princeton uh, Theological Seminary in the early part of the 20th century and considered one of the great theologians of the 20th century, wrote in his book, Calvin and Calvinism, the system of doctrine taught by Calvin is just the Augustinianism common to the whole body of the Reformers. For the Reformation was, as from the spiritual point of view, a great revival of religion. So from the theological point of view, a great revival of Augustinianism. And this Augustinianism is taught by him, that is Calvin, not as an independent discovery of his own, but fundamentally as he learned it from Luther. See, I thought that was a great quote because that pulls it together. That tells us that Luther and Calvin are both completely, totally dependent upon Augustine for their theology. They didn't agree with everything because they split from Augustine on a couple of important points, but they're heavily influenced by Augustine in many manners. And then R.C. Sproul, who just went to be with the Lord recently, a very strong, adamant Calvinist and amillennialist, and I believe he moved towards preterism in his later years, the idea that most uh, prophecy is in future was all fulfilled in 70 A.D., writes in his book, The Holiness of God, Augustinianism is presently called Calvinism or Reformed Theology. Now, that just sets the stage. Now, what happens is Calvin lives in the early part of the 1500s in the 16th century. His teaching dominates within the French-speaking part of, of Switzerland, so he's considered the French-Swiss reformer as opposed to Zwingli, who is the German-Swiss reformer. And he is, he is in Geneva, is his home base, and because of persecution against those who followed the doctrines of Luther and um, and Calvin in England and Scotland and some other places in, in France, they would flee to Geneva and basically go to seminary there under Calvin. When Calvin died, he is succeeded um, by um, Biza, by Theodore Biza. And as that happens, Biza is, is a more rigorous thinker than Calvin, who had his training in law, so he's a fairly rigorous thinking, but, but Biza is able to take Calvin's teaching and he formulates it, he systematizes it more, and he is more responsible for the development of what we now call Calvinism than Calvin. In fact, there's a lot of debate that goes on as to how much of Calvinism Calvin really affirmed, but he, he de definitely affirmed uh, predestination and election in the way that Calvinists will hold to that. The debate is over whether or not he held to uh, limited atonement. By the time you get into um, 
by the time you get into the late 16th century, a young theologian that comes to Geneva and studies under Biza is a man named Jacobus Arminius, anglicized to James Arminius, and he goes back to Amsterdam, he becomes a pastor there, and then he receives his Ph.D. from Leiden University in 1603. Now, let's put that in perspective. What's going on in the Netherlands in 1603? Well, it is a safe space for your independent Baptists and Puritans in England who are coming under persecution uh, by the Anglican Church for their Reformed doctrine. So you have one independent Baptist congregation, Separatist Baptist congregation, pastored by a man named John Robinson, and they all leave England, or most of them do, and they go over to uh, Holland, and they're living there in the Netherlands, but they don't really like it. It's much more Reformed than they are. By Reformed, I mean Calvinistic. And they're not comfortable with the culture, and they want to really have more freedom. So around um, uh, so around that time, they get uh, a charter, a couple of boats, one called the Speedwell, one called the Mayflower, and they end up with only the Mayflower, and they come to North America, and they establish themselves, and we refer to them as the Pilgrims. So they are all in Holland at this same time that all of this debate is going on uh, theologically. And so the followers, uh, Arminius is eventually disagrees with uh, this hard predestination theology. He claims that what he is teaching is what Calvin taught, and his followers basically boil their position down to five points. Most people think that the five points of Calvinism came first. The five points of Calvinism are just a response to five, the five points of Arminianism, and they were call, these folks were called remonstrants. And they believed in total depravity, but it's kind of modified. It's it's it may, all men are sinners, but it's more related. It varies somewhat in how they understand that. Uh, second, they believe in a conditional election. That is, that God uh, chooses those who are saved on the basis of some condition. They believe that Christ died for all, unlimited atonement. They believe that there is a prevenient and a resistible grace, that is, that you can say no to God, and they believed in the possibility of losing salvation. Now, I'm just not hitting the high points here because we're not getting into a detailed study of each of these, but this we would disagree with how they define almost every term here. Then there is, they are brought up on charges. Arminius originally was brought up on charges. He was acquitted and he wasn't a heretic and, but everything develops more and festers more. And so they're going to call to a, a trial together and the Calvinists answer them with their five points. And instead of total depravity, they hold to total inability. That is, man can't, can't do anything he can't even exercise positive volition. He can express no desire to know God whatsoever. Anything that it can, comes out of man, it has to be God-produced because he's spiritually dead. And they will say a, a dead person can't do anything. So they can't even express a desire to know God. Unconditional election means that God chooses who will be saved and who will not be saved, and there's no condition mentioned in Scripture or in God's mind. In limited atonement, they believe that Christ only died for the elect. God chose, I'm going to save this select group of people, and I'm only going to die for that select group of people. That's limited atonement. Irresistible grace means that because they are the chosen, that when God the Holy Spirit draws them, they will necessarily respond. doesn't mean it will be immediate. It may take many years, but it, they cannot finally and totally resist the grace of God. And then the last point is perseverance of the saints. And this is means that if you are truly saved, that is because you are elect, God has given you the right kind of faith and you have saving faith. Therefore, in your life, you will inevitably uh, produce 
good works as evidence of your salvation. There's really two ways that you find Calvinists define perseverance of the saints. One is the way I just articulated, which is what we would refer to today as lordship salvation. The other view is to just emphasize the fact that it is not the saints that persevere, but Christ who perseveres in keeping us. That is tantamount to restricting this to eternal uh, security. Now, when we look at this, and we sometimes hear people talk about uh, four-point Calvinism, this is five-point Calvinism. It was settled at the Synod of Dort that occurred at this time, and those who held to Dortian Calvinists, we would also, I'll get into these definitions in a minute, refer to as a high Calvinist. I'll talk about definitions in a minute. Then we talk about four-point Calvinists. Now, it would seem logical that you would be taking number one out or number five out, but in four-point Calvinists, they don't agree with limited atonement. I've read and I think that Calvin did not ever talk about the atonement in that way, and he would not have agreed their clear statements in Calvin's writings. He would not have held to a limited atonement. Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, who was originally an ordained uh, Presbyterian and uh, an ordained Congregationalist, uh, held to a pretty solid, most people would say, four-point Calvinism. But he didn't hold to a perseverance or lordship view of perseverance. So many of us would say, eh, he was more of a three-and-a-half-point Calvinist, Okay. He believed in eternal security. Now, what's interesting, if you get into Western Europe or you come to the United States and you're talking theology with people, and uh, then uh, and you get to the point of, of talking about Calvinism and Arminianism, they will define you as a Calvinist if you hold to, uh, here I put the two positions side by side, if you hold to Unconditional election and limited atonement, then you are a, you are a Calvinist. That's in the West. But if you go to the East, if you go to Baptists in Ukraine, in the former Soviet Union, Belarus, Russia, any of the former uh, Soviet republics where you have Russian Baptists, Russian Baptists are not like American Baptists. It's always amazing to me how many American Baptists love the Russian Baptists thinking that they believe the same thing because they both had the name Baptists. But Russian Baptists are full-bore Arminians. They do not believe in eternal security. I remember one time when I was, first time I preached at what was called the Christmas Church in Jatomer, where Eager was working at the time, and I, I, I taught a sermon, and I understand this, understood this, and I didn't want to stomp on toes to get people to immediately close their ears, so I was, I, I was just focusing on the gospel and didn't want to get them all, anybody riled up over eternal security. But, uh, and of course, I'm teaching through an interpreter. And after I finished, I went back down, took my seat on the front row, and they had several things that, that, that were going on. And Eager was up there making some announcement about something and somebody else coming to speak. And I heard the lady behind me say something, and my interpreter leaned over to me, and she said, she hopes the next speaker isn't another Calvinist. See, in their culture, a Calvinist is just someone who believes in eternal security. You can disagree with the other four points, but if you believe in eternal security, you're a dirty Calvinist. So it, it, all of this has to do with certain, certain perspectives. But it's important to understand how we use these terms because that also illustrates that for many people, someone who seems a little more inclined towards uh, an emphasis on the sovereignty of God is considered by us to be a hyper-Calvinist. You know, I'll hear people say, well, well, I know so-and-so, and they're just a hyper-Calvinist. And I say, no, they're not. They just believe in exactly what Lewis Berry Chafer held. Really? Chafer believed that? Yes, he was a four-point, three-and-a-half-point Calvinist. 
That's the tradition of Dallas Seminary. Just because somebody's a little more emphasizes the sovereignty of God a little more than you do doesn't make them a hyper-Calvinist. These are terms that have specific definitions. A hyper-Calvinist is a Calvinist who believes that no one must or need to evangelize. Since God has chosen who will be saved, he will save them without our help. That is almost a direct quote. Very famous man named William Carey, who was a, uh, is considered the father of modern missions, went to India and introduced the gospel to India and had a tremendous impact there when he came back to England and because uh, originally he was a shoemaker when he came back to England. Uh, he had not been supported by the uh, Baptist church there, which the Baptist church was, uh, were high, they were hyper-Calvinists. And so he meets with the leaders in the, um, in the uh, Baptist church in England, and one of the men sends up, says, young man, if God wants them to be saved, he will save them without any help from you or me. That's hyper-Calvinism. You don't need to tell anybody the gospel. If God's elected them, they will get saved whether we tell them or not. God will take care of it. That's hyper-Calvinism. High-Calvinist is a term for a Dordian Calvinist, someone who holds to the five points of Calvinism. And then the term modern Calvinism is used to describe anyone who is four-point or three-point or two-and-a-half-point. In fact, one of the men... Uh, theologians at Dallas Seminary in the late 40s and early 50s was a theologian by the name of Henry Thiessen, and many of his notes were published, uh, studies in theology. Many of us have read them. He is very close to uh, what my views are. And yet there are some, I know, friends of mine who would be Chaferian-type Calvinists, four point, three and a half point, and they would say that Thiessen was an Arminian. But I, I listened to a great set of lectures about 10 years ago uh, that were given by a Brit whose Ph.D. and whose focus in teaching was on the history of Calvinism, taught at um, one of the major universities over there. I don't remember which one now. But he was a, he was a high Calvinist, and, and, but he was very objective. See, a lot of Calvinists won't. If you don't agree with your particular view as a four-point or a five-point, then you're an Arminian. And um, and he said, no, even Thiessen was a moderate Calvinist. So that's important to understand. There's often a lot of heat and no light. So at the heart of these issues are these important words. Words are important for us. Words communicate ideas. Even if you change from one synonym to another, you slightly shift the focus or the emphasis of the idea that is being expressed by that particular word. And the words of Scripture are important to study, not just in English, but in the original language, in, uh, in, in the Greek and in the Hebrew. And the reason is, is that often, for example, in the history of these ideas, if you come along in the... 1540s, and you're beginning to translate Scripture, let's say um, you're translating the Geneva Study Bible, Uh, let's say even earlier than that, approximately the same time, William Tyndale, and a lot of the words that we still have in our English text, even if you're using an NIV or or ESV, there's a large percentage of the words that are used today are the same word that Tyndale used in translating into the English in the 1530s, 1540s. Now, that's important because these men are influenced by Augustinianism. So they're front-loaded by their theological framework to take these terms in a certain way. And that gives them a certain sort of deterministic look. But what we need to do is go back and look at how these words are really used in Scripture. Do these claims that are made about the meaning of the word eklektos for choice, 
are cho- uh, are chosen. Is that what they claim? Does foreknowledge mean something that is predetermined? And, and that's how it's translated by other. Does it mean an elective knowledge, a selective love? And that's how some will translate that. So we have to look at that predestined. Does that mean predestined to salvation? Or is it talking about something else in those contexts? And what about God's will, understanding the uh, God's will? His sovereignty is such, I believe, that he is so great and powerful and knowledgeable that God is able to bring about his plan and his purposes without it being destroyed by the by any autonomous decisions on the part of man. Now, that's a much greater God than a God who has to determine every detail along the way in order to secure the end result. And the first time I came to understand that was when I was studying in creation and evolution. And studying God's creations, he created everything perfect, and he created all the kinds, and these are rigid categories. They're much broader than what we think of as species. That's a whole different discussion. But but God creates kinds. He creates various uh, physical laws. He creates various spiritual and moral laws. And what happens when Adam and Eve sin is as sin enters into the creation, the creation is ruptured and corrupted by sin. Death enters into every aspect of creation, not just man's spiritual death, but from that point on they will die physically. It affects uh, uh, the morphology of animals. You think about animals such that we know today as, as being primarily carnivorous, and yet there were no carnivores before the fall. So there's a different gastrointestinal system, maybe a different dental structure. And we know that in the millennial kingdom, that's going to reverse and you will not have carnivores. You will have lions and leopards and tigers and, but they will not be carnivores. They're, they're going to reverse back. So, so what happens is God in his omniscience, knowing how everything would be affected by sin, builds enough flexibility into the categories to handle the chaos that will come from sin. Now, that is a powerful God. The same thing applies in terms of human will. He has a plan that he governs and he sometimes overrides us, but he will always bring about his purposes. But within the structure of his plan, there is enough uh, variation, there's enough flexibility to handle the chaos that comes from human failure and sin and and bad choices. And yet God is still able, without destroying individual human responsibility, to bring about his solution. So as we look at... Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, there's four terms that are going to be important. The first word that we run into is the word to choose. The second that we see here is the word predestined. Uh, third is his will. And then the fourth, which is not in this passage, is the term foreknowledge. So we need to ask these three questions. I'm not going to get through all of this today unless you want to stay till about 1 o'clock. What is the meaning of foreknowledge? Does it simply mean to know things beforehand, or does it mean to determine things beforehand? That's the debate. Second, there are key verses that we have to look at where this word, either the uh, verb prognosco or the noun prognosis is used. And then the third is what's the relation of God's foreknowledge to his omniscience. And in Calvinism, God does not know anything unless he has already predetermined it, because unless God has set it as that which will happen, how could he know what will happen? So to me, that is a limitation on God. So the first word that we run into when we look at this passage is in verse 4, where we read, just as he chose us in him. 
So we have to look at this word, and there's three way, forms of it. There's the verb uh, to choose, eklegomai. There's the uh, adjective eklektos and the uh, noun ekloge. How do we understand those words? The second word that we see is the word that is translated predestination, and that is in the fifth verse, and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. That's an important word. And we also see this word in the chain of words used in Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew, he predestined. So it's very clear there from the language that predestination is based upon foreknowledge. So that's why we have to bring foreknowledge into our four words is because in Romans 8.29 and later we'll see in 1 Peter 1.2, foreknowledge is at the starting point of this chain of, of words. Third, the term his will, we are... Uh, adopted according to the good pleasure of his will brings to the forefront the issue of divine sovereignty versus human will. Now, no one really believes in complete autonomy in terms of, of human will. Everyone believes there are limitations on human will. There were limitations on Adam's will. There are greater limitations on our will. There are some things we will never do. There are some things we can desire to do that are great and wonderful things that would glorify God, and God never gives us the opportunity. He shuts it down in terms of his permissive overriding will. But that doesn't mean that, that, um, that we can't desire those things. Uh, but when, what we're really focusing on here is the issue of the uh, freedom to choose the gospel to believe it or not to believe it. I can't choose where I was born. I can't choose where I'm going to die. Uh, there are many times in life when I've been faced with choices. I really wish I had a third, fourth, or fifth choice, and there's no way that could ever happen. God limits our choices. I have to choose between A and B, and that's it. You know, I don't have that kind of autonomy, but in the area of my eternal destiny, I have a choice. If, and then fourth, this takes us to this fourth term, foreknowledge, found in 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of times we just stop when it says elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that's a very important verse, as we'll see, because it tells us that this, whatever elect means, it's on the basis of or on the ground of what God knew ahead of time. That is the basic meaning of foreknowledge. There's no evidence that foreknowledge means anything other than prescience, to know ahead of time what will, what will happen. But it's also, this elect is also by the sanctification of the Spirit. Now, that's going to throw it into a different category of understanding. It's not a choice or a selection, but it's emphasizing quality. It is uh, the quality or the excellence of those involved. We'll get into those details. So what the Bible teaches about foreknowledge, what do we learn here? Just cover a few things at the very beginning to get us focused, and then we'll have to deal with uh, all of the verses when we come back. The claim, and this is important, there is a Calvinist claim. If you haven't ever heard this, then you've been rather sheltered. Um, I was sheltered. I always heard one view growing up. But when I started to think about going to Dallas Seminary, I went up there, visited with Randy Price. You've heard me tell that story. And he was telling me that the big debate on campus, and this extended for almost the entire time I was at Dallas, so for six or seven years, the hot-button issue was on Calvinism versus Arminianism, and you couldn't sit down for lunch 
or just to, to have a co- coffee or Coke without getting into heated discussions with other students as we were all trying to work our way through and understand. That's one of the things that students miss by not going to a sticks and bricks seminary. I learned more about how to think, how to argue, how to present my case from sitting around with eight or nine men, some of whom uh, agreed, some of whom did not, and debate and argue and discuss these ideas for an extended period of time. It teaches you how to think and how to reason and how to articulate your position. Well, one of the big arguments is that when you have the word to know in Scripture, it means more than just intellectual awareness of something. It means to have a personal, loving relationship. And so they will go back to a passage such as, well, Adam knew Eve. See, that shows a deep, intimate relationship. And that kind of a statement is then extrapolated to uh, foreknowledge. The prob- there are several problems with that methodologically. First of all, uh, you have to be careful when you go to Hebrew to Greek to make sure there is a connection there. Secondly, yada simply means to know. It is not a word that communicates foreknowledge. Gnosko is how yada is translated most of the time. That is simply the word to know. Prognosko, that adding that prefix pra means beforehand. That changes the meaning of the word. You can't argue from yada to prognosko without committing about three or four uh, logical fallacies. But this is from a quote from Louis Burkhoff when I was in my, well, for most of seminary. We would read Chafer, have readings in Chafer and theology classes, but we also had to read Burkhoff. Burkhoff was a, Burkhoff was a premier reformed theologian. And we had to read. Now, some guys would gripe about that, but you have to learn what other people say and what other people's views are. Whether you agree with them or not isn't the purpose of just telling seminary students that you're only going to read people you agree with. You have to learn to read and understand people you don't agree with and be able to think through why you don't agree with them. And so he was considered a premier Reformed theologian, and he says the word yada may simply mean to know or to take cognizance of someone or something, but may also be used in the more pregnant sense. Now, whenever you read that, you you know, the radar ought to go off. Where are you getting this pregnant sense, this fuller meaning? The pregnant sense of taking knowledge of one with loving care or making one the object of loving care or elective love. See, they're reading election and foreordination and predestination into their meaning of foreknowledge when you just can't, when, when you can't do that. And so they, um, he says, in this sense, it serves the idea of election, Genesis 18, 19, Amos 3, 2, and Hosea 13, 5. Now, if you look at those verses, he's reading that into those verses. He goes on to say, the meaning of the words prognoskein and prognosis in the New Testament is not determined by their usage in the classics. Now, he has to say that because there's absolutely no place outside of the Bible where you find any evidence that these words relate to elective love or choice, okay? Every usage in everyday Greek, koine, classical, all had to do with knowing something ahead of time. He says then, but by their special meaning of yada, they do not denote simple intellectual foresight or prescience, the mere taking knowledge of something beforehand, but rather a selective knowledge which regards one with favor and makes one an object of love and thus approaches the idea of foreordination. So she is shifted from foreknowledge to foreordination and gives, uh, gives some verses. But they base this meaning of elective love on foreknowledge on five uses of yada out of to 944 uses of the word in the text. Now, that that's a logical fallacy. That's an exegetical fallacy. You're really forcing a meaning without, without evidence or without 
uh, definition. So this is important to understand uh, where they're coming from and the methodology that is used in order to support and substantiate uh, their particular their particular view. Yada is definitely used of relationships over 90 times to describe a personal relationships, but not the idea of an elective an elective love. Always have to look at context. Now, I'm going to give you a little evidence here. In Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, that's the classic Greek definition. They, the first definition is to know beforehand or in advance, to have knowledge of something ahead of time. Notice their second definition, to choose beforehand. What's their evidence? Romans 8.29, Romans 9 through chapters 9 through 11, and 1 Peter 1.20. Wait a minute. Those are the passages where the debate exists. This is a problem in this dictionary. Everybody has to understand these dictionaries aren't perfect. They're all informed by the thinking of the, uh, of, of, of the guys who are, are developing them. Now, these are great scholars, but they're reading their theology in here because you, you, it's a methodological flaw to take the, the passages that are in doubt and use them to prove the doubtful definition. That's just basic, uh, a basic flaw there. And uh, then Acts 26.5, to know from time past. All the dictionaries, I'm not going to go through all of them, but all the other dictionaries emphasize this idea of knowing something ahead of time. The uh, Liddell Scott Jones, which is your classic classical Greek uh, lexicon, Moulton and Milligan, which is your Koine uh, dictionary lexicon, uh, Koine gr- Greek outside of Scripture. It means to foreknow or to know previously. The New International Dictionary of New Testament theology gives evidence that uh, this, this was a... Um, a term that was used uh, since Hippocrates, and it denotes the foreknowledge which makes it possible to predict the future. See, it's really clear. Everywhere else it means just knowing ahead of time. So the conclusion is that the lexicons can provide no examples outside of the Bible where prognosco means anything other than prescience to know something ahead of time or beforehand. There's no hint in any usage. Even the passages that they claim demonstrate this, it, it's dubious. They're reading it, and it's methodologically flawed. We have to start at the building blocks of any sentence, use words, and we have to understand those words, and we have to build on those words. And I'll just conclude with this. We'll start here next time, but... Acts 26.5 gives us a non-theological use of the term. Talking about, this is Paul, and he is on trial, and he's talking about the Pharisees and what they knew about him uh, when he had come and studied as a, as a Pharisee. Now, much later, as a Christian, they're attacking him, and so he says, they knew me before, they knew me from the first. That's how it's translated. The word there, know me from the first, is prognosco. Now, this word means to know, not just to know me, but it also implies to know about me. That's why I put that in there. It's always expressing that about the object. That will be important. We'll review it next time. It will be important in a couple of other passages. It's not just talking about a personal relationship, because he may not have had a personal relationship with all these Pharisees, but they knew who he was. They knew what he did as a Pharisee. They knew things about him. That's what uh, beforehand. So they had heard about him uh, after he had become a Christian, and so they had heard these things before he came back to Jerusalem. And when he came back, he can say they already knew things about me. They knew it ahead of time. And so that's the basic basic meaning of this particular word. It's also used in Matthew 12:33, when Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. In other words, um, you can know something about the tree by looking at the fruit. You see an apple, you know something about the tree, that it's an apple tree. The word doesn't mean for a tree is the is electively loved by its fruit. That doesn't even make sense. 
So you can't be reading these things in there. So we've gone through a lot. We've set the stage. We're working through these words to see how they're actually used in Scripture, to look at these claims that are made about election and predestination so that we can refine our understanding and not be influenced by bringing uh, bringing illegitimate meanings to what we read as we read through the Scripture with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. And, Father, to help us think through them, to realize that, yes, you are sovereign. You do overrule and you uh, oversee all of your creation and all of human history. But in the same time, you do not overrule or override individual volition in relation to the gospel, that we each have a test, a test to determine if we are going to accept your solution for sin or reject your solution for sin. And that is the essence of salvation, to determine whether or not we are uh, we trust Christ as our Savior, as the one whom you sent to pay the penalty for our sin that we might have eternal life, or whether we're going to try to earn that in some way on our own. And, Father, we pray that as we go through this that you will clarify this in our understanding, help us to... Um, unscrew the inscrutable, as it were, and that we might have a greater appreciation for the profundity of your plan of salvation. We pray for those listening that if they have not ever understood the gospel, that they would understand it more clearly, that Christ died for your sins. You have a choice. It's not something God predetermined. It is an issue related to your own decision. Father, we pray that for each of us as believers that you would uh, help us further to understand who you are, your knowledge, and your plan and your purposes. In Christ's name, amen.